Hey, good morning. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of Mark as we continue to look at this passage of Scripture about the truths of serious discipleship concerning marriage and divorce. And as you turn there, let's bow in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you this morning for bringing us here today. I pray, Father, that as we approach your word, that we would be attentive to it. Especially, Lord, the seriousness of this section of Scripture and this topic. I pray, Lord, that as your disciples today would grow, that they would become discerning, they would become serious, they would become disciples who are in self-control and um, view the institution of marriage in a new way, in the way that it was originally created. So Lord, remove from us any, uh, any kind of uh, understanding of marriage that has been incorrect and replace it, Lord, with Uh, what the scriptures say about it. And then I pray, Lord, from this day forward, we would take that position and that we'd be able to communicate it to others too. Even if, Lord, we have made mistakes and we have not aligned up with scripture concerning our situation. I pray, Lord, that you would just guide us and direct us in, in this matter today. In Christ's name, amen. Mark chapter 10, looking at, let me just read verses 10 through 12, just pick it up there. Remember the question that was raised by the Pharisees in verse number 2 came from Deuteronomy chapter 24, where the Pharisees asked Jesus in verse 2, is it lawful for a man to divorce a wife? Jesus said to them, well, then, what, what, what did Moses command you? And they said Moses commanded or permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Okay, as the, the Pharisees left, and now the disciples are alone with Jesus in the house, of course, that piqued their curiosity to want n- more information about it. And so in verse number 10, it says, in the house, this is Mark chapter 10, verse 10, Disciples began questioning him about this again, it's a matter of divorce. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. As I said last time, that those words are shocking. Matter of fact, in the other Gospels, the disciples responded in this way, that it's better not to be married. And that's, that's a proper response. But it is, it is a shocking statement, especially in our day. But remember, the question has already been raised, what will marriage mean when virtually anyone has a right to marry and anyone has a right to redefine marriage in whatever way they want? Well, the answer we are, we are witnessing in our day 
that marriage as a, per, a privilege and respected institution is disappearing right before our eyes. Marriage actually will never be the same again because of what's taken place. We Christians, though, cannot sit by, we can't let the waves of an evil and a perverse generation wash over us and sweep us away. We have the Word of God, and the Word of God gives the correct understanding of sex, of gender, of marriage, of morality. In other words, the Bible will establish the framework for a clear understanding of marriage, a clear understanding of identity, a clear understanding of sexuality. So the church, what the church must do is it must seize the opportunity to be courageous uh, in our day so we can witness the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we can take the biblical pattern of a good and a godly marriage between a man and a woman and work hard at it Two sinful people coming together in a marriage is already difficult. But by God's spirit and by his word, we can do it. We can have successful, strong marriages that ultimately become a picture of how Christ loved the church. But it takes constant attention. It takes diligence. We cannot give in. We cannot give up. And so the Lord tells us in the Word of God that, listen, the reason why divorce came about in the first place is because of the hardness of people's hearts, the hardness of the heart of man, in verse number 5. So the Lord's disciples are to have their minds changed and look upon marriage as an irrevocable, insoluble, indissoluble, and permanent Union between a man and a woman. It was a union that they nor no one else should break. So Jesus has been teaching his disciples several important truths in reference to the marriage institution. The first thing he was teaching is he was reminding his disciples of what has already been written in Scripture concerning God's original blueprints for marriage. I already covered those. And secondly, he is correcting a false understanding that has been prevalent in the day in which he ministered among the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and amongst the general population. Moses had indeed been divinely directed to allow divorce in cases of uncleanness, and that is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is the uncleanness or the indecency of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, where it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, he has found, and because he has found some indecency in her, then, of course, and on that he can put her away, give her a certificate of of divorce, and send her away. So Jesus interprets some indecency in her as pornea, fornication. 
That's the exception clause, not recorded in Mark, but recorded in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19. In other words, sexual immorality is the uncleanness and indecency of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. So she was given a certificate of divorce uh, in that passage, but being defiled also in that passage shows that she was dismissed for something other than fornication. Sexual immorality, either in the first or second marriage in that passage of Scripture, it was an illegitimate divorce, and the marriage union was not then broken. It is only broken if the other remarries. Adultery is committed, defilement occurs, and of course, uh, when that happens, uh, then immorality becomes rampant. So Moses permitted divorce for one reason. I'm saying in the first point is that sexual sin, which I covered last week, I'm reviewing, is sexual immorality. Now why? It, it is, it's because it is only sin, uh, <clears throat> it is the only sin that breaks the marriage union. And, and that's what really actually comes up in um, the Gospel of Mark, uh, Matthew, excuse me, and, and other, another place. But if you notice back again in verse number 11, how clear the Lord says this. He says, and he said to them in verse 11, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. All right, so this issue of being remarried here is interpreted by the Lord as adultery. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. So that is rampant adultery in this passage. So in order for the church to prevent rampant adultery, they must keep the original pattern for marriage set by God in the beginning. And the Lord already laid that out for us. So this interpretation is really consistent with the exception clause, which I'd like to look at uh, this morning. So I want you to take your Bibles and turn to two passages in the Gospel of Matthew, and that's Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, and Matthew chapter 19, verse number 9. Now, of course, this is the exception clause as, as it is referred to, and I'll I'll say it again that the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke leaves it out. It leaves out the exception clause. And the reason why is because Mark and Luke are only given the general rule and the Gospel of Matthew alone is, a, is recording the exception. And the reason why is because, remember, the subject in Mark is presenting to disciples who are going to be the salt and light of the world to get the correct understanding of what marriage is. And if divorce takes place, the only reason for divorce to take place. And then, of course, the matter of when a person is allowed to be remarried if divorce does take place. So there are four views one may hold on divorce and remarriage. I'll mention them again. I did mention them last time. The first one is this that divorce and remarriage are okay for virtually any reason. That was particularly the thought of the day in Jesus' time. It's the thought of the day today. All right? I don't hold that position, neither does Scripture. 
Second view is this. Both divorce and remarriage are forbidden under all circumstances. That is not something the Bible teaches either. A third position would be divorce is permissible under certain circumstances, but remarriage is forbidden. I also don't believe that the Scripture teaches that position. The position that I mentioned last week, which I believe the Scripture holds, and I hold, is that, number four, that divorce and remarriage are both permitted in only, only under certain circumstances. And so, there, I said last week there are three biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage. Actually, there are only two. But a third one also breaks the oneness, the one, uh, oneness in the marriage union where a man and woman become one. There are three things that break that. So the first biblical ground for divorce and remarriage is, I said first, was the habitual, unrepentant, hard-hearted adultery and fornication that would take place in a marriage. Now, if you look at Matthew chapter 5, verse number 32, you'll see it says this. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then look over to Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, where it says similar thing. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality... So here it's translated immorality, the other passage, unchastity, really meaning a sexual sin, uh, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So, see, the exception clause is not only for divorce, but for remarriage. That if a person is biblically divorced, they could get remarried without the stigma of entering into an adulterous relationship. So what is true of the husband is also true of the wife. So yes, originally, the penalty of adultery was death. However, because of the hardness of people's hearts, God allowed Moses to spare the adulterer's life by allowing divorce. So God, in his mercy, provided divorce instead of death. And, of course, we are, as I already mentioned, because of the entrance of sin into the picture. Uh, however, even though it is still God's will that marriage be till death do us part, the reason for divorce is sin. And there are all sorts of sins that destroy marriages. But there is only one sin that dissolves the oneness in the marriage bond. And that was the the main point that Jesus made when he said to the Pharisees in Mark chapter 10, for from the beginning of creation, God made made them male and female, and for this reason man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh, and they are no longer two but one. That, That picture of two people coming together and becoming one becomes the matter in deciding whether 
someone has actually broken that oneness. And of course, again, the only one, there's only one sin that dissolves the oneness of ma- the marriage bond, and is, that is the sin of pornea. Uh, refer, this word uh, refers not only actually in, the, in, the, in Scripture in that day, it referred not only to sexual behavior involving single individuals, but also to infidelity during the engagement period, and of course in marriage itself. So the term pornea, fornication, can be understood to include unchastity, prostitution, harlotry. Uh, Of course, fornication is another way of saying it. And various kinds of unlawful sexual intercourse, immorality, such as adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, incest. See, the term fornication, I believe, uh, refers to sexual sins in a general way. So then God, in his mercy gave an exception. The marriage bond could be broken by infidelity. Moses allowed for divorce in Israel, and Jesus allowed for divorce with one possibility, at least in the Gospels. We have more information in the epistles when I'll look there in a minute. In other words, uh, sexual misconduct is really the the one possibility. That means that sexual misconduct on the part of a husband or a wife so flagrantly violates the one flesh union that it may lead to the dissolution of the marriage bond. Now, saying that, I'll say this also, that in Scripture, only one act could break the marital oneness that leads to divorce. But I said in the beginning, I've been using the phrase that this one, this first point, this first reason uh, that a person can have biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage is that of a habitual, unrepentant, hard-hearted type of adultery. And the reason why I say that is because we must keep in mind that the divorce is always, always the last resort. And I believe that everything possible should be done to rescue marriages even when sexual sin has taken place. See, because... Divorce is allowed, but it is not required. It is permitted, but it is not required. And the second reason why I would say habitual, unrepentant, hard-hearted adultery is because of the appeal of the very character of God. That God is patient and long-suffering with his children when we sin. God does not zap us out with one sin, does he? If he did, no one would be here today. All right? So that means when we all together are growing and increasing in the knowledge of God, in fact, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, it actually tells us that when we're increasing in the knowledge of God, 
we are also increasing in our own patience and long-suffering with other people and in circumstances. And we are actually doing that with joy, not under duress, not because we have to, but because we want to, because we know that's the character of God to every one of us. God is patient and long-suffering with us, right? So that means why I say that is in this appeal that from the Old Testament we can conclude that God allowed for the possibility of divorce when he gave Israel, the nation itself, a certificate of divorce after prolonged spiritual adultery. In fact, if you'd like to turn there, you don't have to, but you can just mark down the reference. In Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse number 8, listen what it says there. It says, and I saw, Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 8, and I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, the adulteries is in the plural. That means God bore along with this people in their act of spiritual adultery. All right? It says, I sent her away and given her a writ of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. Now, the Lord is speaking specifically in a spiritual way there where the people worshipped other idols, and to God, worshipping other idols is actual spiritual adultery. Because what it does is it breaks the oneness that a uh, the, the person in Israel would have with the one and living God and would break the oneness that a man had with God himself. So in other words, it was not a one-time act, but a habitual, unrepentant, hard-hearted adultery in which God brought down the boom and gave them a certificate of separation from him. So in other words, under this first point, oneness is dissolved or broken by habitual, unrepented, hard-hearted adultery. That means a person who divorces for that reason, the innocent party can be remarried or they can decide to be single. They can decide to stay separated and be single and not be involved at all with another person. See, just because a person says, well, I'm not married now, I can go with people that I want to go out with, and I could do what I want to do, but not make any commitments. If, they involve with any, if they're involved with any kind of sexual activity, it's still fornication before God. It's still sin before God. You can't get away from that. God sees, and God knows what's going on. And God takes this very seriously. Now, I want to say this, though that divorce and remarriage is no easy subject to evaluate. Every single circumstance that happens has to be evaluated on its own merit and its own circumstances, and then the scripture must be applied to it to figure out where that person is and what they should do next. So, and the Bible, of course, is, is clear on this one. A second biblical ground for divorce and remarriage is found in 1 Corinthians, which I'd like you to turn there, chapter 7, 
1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10 through 16. I'm not going to read all those verses, but I'm just going to identify the verses that are pertinent to the point. All right, so the second biblical ground for divorce and remarriage is desertion. Desertion of a non-believing partner. All right? Now, look at verse number 10 and 11. Because in verse 10 and 11 gives directives to married believers. All right? These are believers that are married. It says in verse 10, But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Now, there it's given instructions that if it it gets so bad that she cannot stay and she leaves, she must remain unmarried. There's no option for remarriage there. And that the husband should not send her, his wife, away, even, uh, of course, opposite the man, that he shouldn't send her away. He should continue to keep her as his wife. So, see, the obligation of the Christian wife or husband is to abstain from obtaining a divorce because of the sinful nature of man. If one does obtain a divorce, they are exhorted to remain single or be reconciled to their spouse. Second directive that is given here in Corinthians is to the Christian married to a non-believer. Somebody gets converted, right? They were both unconverted. One person in the marriage gets converted. But the other spouse doesn't get converted. So you have either a husband or a wife in that home that are believers. They want to follow Christ. They want to learn the word of God. But the other uh, partner, uh, their uh, their husband or wife, not interested. Uh, They haven't come to faith. And so they are, um, but, you know, so there are two things that could happen. Either they could leave or they could stay because they want to stay, right? Okay, you do your, I'm doing my thing, but I don't want to get out. I want to stay. Well, the Bible gives directives for that too. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you notice verse 12 and 13, here's for somebody who wants to stay in the marriage. Now, remember, this is directive to the Christian married to a non-believer. It says in verse 12, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. In verse 13, and the woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, let her not send, let, uh, let her not send her husband away. All right, so there's the directives there. But what if the person doesn't want to stay in the marriage? Well, verse number 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it says this. They don't want to stay in the marriage. It says, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Now, that little term, not under bondage, simply refers to, listen, something's broken. and They're they're no longer under that person anymore. So in God's mercy, divorce is permitted 
when the unbeliever demands the divorce and they are then free from the marriage bond when the unbeliever obtains the divorce. So the unbeliever is the one who should obtain the divorce. Why? Because they are free from the marriage bond there and they are permitted at that point to remarry. All right, so in other words, they abandoned. They don't want to live with the believer anymore. They abandon the marriage. They desert the marriage, and they go off and do what they have to do. Well, in that case, the oneness is dissolved, broken by desertion, the desertion of the unbeliever, and so that frees up the person to be remarried or, again, stay single for the innocent party but they are only to remarry those who are in the Lord. They are only to remarry. The believer is only to remarry a believer, a genuine blood-bought believer. And so that is the second reason that the Bible gives where a person can get a divorce and then get remarried. There's a third well, it's not a really reason for a divorce, but there is a third event, let me say it like that, that dissolves the marriage oneness. And, of course, that event would be death. And I want you to notice what it says in verse number 39 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the death of a spouse. It says, in verse number 39, it says, a wife is not bound, is a wife is bound as long as her husband lives. There's that word bound again, right? She's bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to marry to free to marry to whom she wishes only in the Lord. In other words, that the oneness is dissolved by death, and remarriage can t- take place. Or singleness can take place uh, for the one surviving their partner. But again, only they are to marry those who are real believers. So, in conclusion, at least for this section, divorce is never commanded. It is permitted. In chronic cases of fornication slash immorality and the desertion of an unbeliever. Divorce is not God's original plan. So divorce is not God's will for every cause. It is only permitted in the case of adultery, and that is primarily prolonged and unrepentant adultery, and desertion by an unbeliever. It must really be emphasized that apart from those two specific exception cases, divorce is not sanctioned in Scripture. So if divorce is not sanctioned in Scripture, for neither is remarriage. If it doesn't come under those two categories. Or the third one being death. So even though divorce is allowed for unfaithfulness, it's not required. Divorce is, again, the last resort when a partner has committed adultery and reconciliation appears impossible. Now, saying all that, if the church fails to uphold this good and great institution of marriage, 
it will be because their saltiness has gotten sufficiently mixed with the views and patterns of this world system. See, the church will, will, will then lose its ability to preserve and season the world, and then hence corruption will result and abound, hindering salt's effectiveness to do its job, to preserve, to season, and then, of course, shelving its use, usefulness. And, of course, the point being that back in Mark chapter 9, verse 50, salt is good, it says, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? In other words, if it, the serious disciples are going to have their minds changed concerning the institution of marriage, that even if they were they bought into the culture, and the mindset of the culture, even if they bought into the religious definitions of what marriage is and what remarriage is, even if they got bad counsel from someone else about their own marital situation, they are to change their mind. And their mind is to be now adjusted to what God teaches in Scripture. So that, that in turn, can be passed down to the next generation. So that, in turn, can be passed down to the next a group of Christians that are going to take the gospel to the rest of the world. So the marriage institution, if it's not kept where it ought to be, will be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men. The world will see no difference between the professing church and what everybody else is doing. Therefore, the church will have no preserving influence on this corrupt world if it fails to be different and it fails to be holy in this matter of marriage. Now let me mention that the starting point for a successful marriage is salvation. It's real, genuine salvation. You must be born again. And once you're born again and have the Holy Spirit of God living in you, you are the temple of God. Your body is no longer your own. You are now God's possession. You are responsible for your body, where you go with it, what you do with it, you are responsible with your body. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, it says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, what God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. And then another passage of Scripture in Corinthians, if you turn back a chapter to chapter 6, notice what it says there. Chapter 6, verse number 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. And this is talking about it in, in a dual way. This is talking about it in a spiritual way and a physical way. Listen to what it says. Do you not know, verse 15 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? May it never be. Verse 16, or do you not know that the one who 
joins himself to a harlot is one body with her. There's that oneness motif again in Scripture. For he says, the two will become one flesh. Verse 17, notice what it says in verse 17. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. There's the oneness. When you're joined to the Lord, you have a oneness with God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. That cannot be broken by spiritual adultery. In other words, idolatry, where you go worship someone else, or you say, I'm worshiping this God and this God. I have, I have several gods I worship. No, you only can worship one God. So you're one with God when you become a believer. Then in verse number 18, notice what it says. It says, flee in morality, period. And then it says this, every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Verse 19, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Verse number 20, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorified God where? In your body. In the thing that you and I walk around with every single day. We are to, we are to function in our body in a way that honors God. Not only in what we do, but what we think. That becomes a serious matter. For you and I. Now let me just give a word to those who have been given bad counsel. Such as divorce under the no-fault divorce policy. Or divorced on the grounds of incompatibility. Or remarried without a clear understanding of biblical principles. We need the wisdom of Solomon when in these matters, believe me. But the first thing is this. Where the sin of adultery or un, an unbiblical remarriage has taken place, forgiveness is possible and available to those who repent and confess their sins and bear fruit of repentance. See, the question may be this. Does God forgive those who fail in their marriage? And the answer to that question is assured by Scripture, specifically where it says in Mark chapter 3, verse number 28, Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So that's the sin of blasphemy. That's the sin that one cannot be forgiven of. And really, basically what that is, is rejecting Christ. If you reject Christ, you have eternal punishment. You rejected the only offer God gives you to be made right with him, to have your sins forgiven, all of them, and to have them washed away forever, never to come against you again. See, if you reject that offer, that is the impartable sin because it's the Holy Spirit of God that convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. If we don't want to listen to God, then we have to 
we're listening to ourselves or someone else, and therefore, that's an eternal sin. A second thing I want to mention is this. If you are in an unbiblical marriage, you should not attempt to get out of it. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 27, it says, Are you bound to a wife? Do not send her away. See, what you need to do is to seek forgiveness for the sin of hard-heartedness and adultery and then work hard to glorify God and be a blessing to the mate with whom you are married. Again, if you are not biblically divorced and remarried, then some biblical counsel is needed. Again, I just want to mention confession, repentance that your remarriage was unbiblical, and then also to give yourself as a living sacrifice to God because of his mercy to you. Because he does forgive that sin, but he doesn't want that sin to go on and that wrong teaching to be propagated. He wants you to change your mind. He wants you to do his will, and he wants you to humbly serve. Before it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, there it is again, as living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and then what? And do not be conformed to the world. Don't let the world press you into its mold concerning all its views, especially this view of marriage. And then what happens? Be transformed in the renewing of your mind. Let the scripture change your mind. Give you the mind of Christ so you see it God's way. And then from this day forward, whatever happened in the past, go on and trust God that his will, the will of God, is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. No one can change it. This is God's will. And, of course, the road back is repentance and forgiveness, restoration and companionship, getting a couple getting back to intimacy, and then, of course, repair and good maintenance on their marriage so they don't head in the direction that they're going to shipwreck. And then, of course, resume obedience to God's original design and be blessed. That's what we ought to do. So, brethren, at this point, I just want to say great wisdom and counsel and discernment and prayer needs to go into a person who wants to get married but is not married yet. Because according to Scripture, they're going to be married to someone that they're going to be one with, cemented to for the rest of their earthly life. So I'm just saying this to those who have not yet been married. And you want to be married. And there's nothing wrong with the desire to be married, even though Paul says three times in 1 Corinthians, stay single like I am. Because you have more time to serve the Lord if you're single. And if God's given you the gift of singleness, God bless you for that. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong at all with that. Some people may look down upon it, but the Scripture does not. Matter of fact, it looks at it in a favorable way. So in other words, 
how would a wise person choose a mate? What are you looking for in a mate? See, a wise person finds out these things before they get in a serious relationship. In other words, you're, you may have no prospects at all. There may be no one down the road, but you want to get married. You start thinking about who you're going to marry now and what their character ought to be. What are you looking for? I'll tell you what you're looking for. You're looking for, I'm going to give you nine things you're looking for. Here's the first one. Here's the first one. And all of them are based on Proverbs and the Word of God. The first one is this, that you're looking for a wise man and woman who desires to do what is biblically right before God. That's what you're looking for. And that means also that you're looking to do what's biblically right before God yourself. You've got to put yourself there first. In other words, they seek God's will. They want God's will because they know God's will is the best for them. And so, therefore, they seek his direction. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with your whole heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. That's a wise person. A second thing you're looking for in a man or a woman who is, you're looking for a man or a woman who is truly converted, bearing spiritual fruit for their Lord and Savior. And I mean that for this reason. They're not just saying, I know Jesus. They're not just saying, I go to church. They're not just saying, oh, I read the Bible. No, they are a Christian. And what I mean by that from Proverbs is, is they fear God. They fear God. No exceptions. No exceptions. For it says in Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then, of course, there's no exception. A third thing is that you're looking for a godly man and woman who fears the Lord and practices spiritual discernment. All right? Meaning they value the spiritual. They want to be the wise man of Scripture. They do not want to be characterized as a fool, as naive, or as someone who scoffs. They want to be the wise person. And this is above all. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And then Proverbs 3, 7, love her. That means love wisdom, and she will watch over you. See, a, a person who loves wisdom will have discernment. All right, and they will have discernment on who they're going to pick to marry. It's not going to be any old person. It's not because you were attracted physically. It's not because of you're getting, you know, butterflies in your stomach. It's because you have a good understanding of 
what makes two people come together and stay together their whole life. See, that's what the scripture does for us. A fourth thing is this. They have good training and background. All right, you're looking for a man or woman who has self-control and can be trusted and relied upon. And this is, of course, very desirable. In other words, they're not an alcoholic. They're not involved with illegal or legal drugs. They have not been accused of any kind of abuse of people or child abuse, or divorce, or any criminal activity. And I can go on for that. In other words, where it says, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, you will not depart from it, that he has left the home with a good understanding of what wisdom is. And of course, Proverbs 22.6, a good name is to be more desired than great riches. Favor is better than silver and gold. And, of course, Proverbs 20 and verse number 1, wine is a mocker and strong drink a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. And then a fifth thing, you're looking for a man or a woman who shows kindness to all kinds of people and respects all kinds of people. Number five would be that the person is good-natured and even-tempered. Kindness is easy for them. They are not given to pride where they are looking down at people. They're not given to quick bouts of anger. Where And this is very much needful in picking someone. It says in Proverbs 6, 17, haughty eyes and a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. God hates that. And then in Proverbs 22, 24, and 25, it says, Do not associate with a man given to anger, or go with a hot-tempered man, lest you learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. He is a person that has kindness towards people doesn't have a chip on his shoulder or her shoulder. You know, one day that I I was at a prayer breakfast, actually, many, many years ago, and kind of were at this young couple's house. They weren't married but a couple years, and I never saw this kind of activity in my life, but something happened between the husband and wife there, and she got very, very, very angry, ran out of the house, got in the car, started up, and pulled out. And as she was pulling out, there was a car right next to her. But she started turning the wheel right when she was pulling out. So the car just went, bam, smack right into the other car. And it was all, and she came out apologetic and all that kind of stuff, but it was all because of just a quick temper, not thinking what was going on, not being able to deal with it in a a way that was, was honorable. And, and yet, you know, see, those are some of the things you don't find out when you are courting. Is it courting? Dwayne, what is it? <laughs> All right. You're getting serious with a person, and you're thinking, I could marry this person. You don't find out some things right away. 
You may find those things. People can hide things until they say, I do, and then they're gone in a direction that you never thought, right? That happens all the time. See, a wise person, though, they're observant. They're skilled. They know what to look for. They look for the little things, the little kernels, you know, the little fox on the wall. They look for those things. And I tell you what, if you see those things, don't even pursue it. But pray that the Lord would direct you to a person that would be compatible with you and that you're looking for a marriage that's going to last, that's going to grow, a marriage that's moving forward with the Lord. A sixth thing would be this. The person is ambitious and industrious. So you're looking for a man or a woman who is not lazy, but hardworking and uses time, talents, and money wisely. And not only that, but they also give. They're not just hoarders. They're they're just not stacking up money and that's it. They are people that are wise and industrious and ambitious. Like it says in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 4, this is vital in a relationship. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. In Proverbs 10.4, go to the ant, O you sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief, officer or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision for harvest. See, there is something about someone who is industrious. They are diligent. They don't even come close to the definition of being lazy. There is something you need to look for that. You don't want to marry someone you're going to have to take care of the rest of your life because they don't want to work. That just puts a burden on a marriage and on a relationship that's not good, right? Because that's going to lead to not having enough finances, that leads to this and leads to that, it leads to all kinds of things. Don't, don't You look, at, look for that before you say, I'm, I'm going to think about marrying, you know, I'm thinking about marrying this person. Number seven, they have good morals. You're looking for a man or woman who is clean and healthy in body, soul, and mind. Not perfect. We're not looking for someone who's perfect. We're, so, we're looking for someone who is moving in these directions. They're, this is priceless. That they, uh, you know what? It's not used very often today, but that if you if you really want to come before the Lord, you want to be a virgin before you get married. This this whole idea of cohabitating with someone before they marry to see how it works out is 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 from the pit of hell. That's not God's intentions, never will be God's intention, and that's the world's intention, right? That's n- should never be in your mind. Your, your thinking at all. It should be as far away from you as possible. Keep yourself pure sexually. And that means keep yourself pure in your mind sexually. Because that's where it starts. It starts in your mind. And then you'll have self-control when it comes to your body. You'll learn to say no. You'll say, I'm not going there. I'm not doing that. I'm not going with that group. I'm not going to read this stuff. I'm not going to look at that stuff. See, no. There's a lot of no that takes place when you have control of yourself, right? But you'll be glad for it in the long run. And not only that, you'll be actually practicing living in and before the eyes of the Lord. So this is priceless. That's where it says in Proverbs chapter 
5, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated all, always with her love. An excellent wife in Proverbs 31.10, who can find? For her worth is far above jewels. And then number eight, you're looking for a man or a woman who view marriage as a permanent institution and a gift of God's favor. In other words, you're viewing somebody who has a lifetime agreement and they believe marriage is forever and that it's one flesh. That's why the scriptures tell us, listen, to rejoice in the wife of your youth. And, of course, the Genesis passage of scripture, you'll leave father and mother, you'll cleave to your spouse, and you'll become one flesh. That's essential, a lifetime agreement, looking at it from a biblical perspective. And then here's the last one. This may be a tough one. You view children as a gift from God. Now you say, well, I did that before I got married, but when I had kids, it's not so much of a gift now. You know what I mean? No, I'm just saying it's, it's, it's really wonderful to have kids. Kids are going to teach you more than you think. Because sometimes when your kids are growing up, you're going to see you in them. And you're going to see the things that you don't like about yourself in your children. Right? And, of course, for parents, it's our job to find out where our kid's at, what's going on in their heart, what bent towards sin do they have, and adjust them away from it, right, and give them wisdom. And to give them a good model as you live before their eyes on what a, a good marriage is, you know. And, um, and even if your marriage failed, you can teach them what a good marriage is. All right, so view children, in other words, as a heritage, as a gift from God. Uh, and so it says in Scripture, behold, children are a gift from the Lord. It says in Proverbs one twenty-seven three, the fruit of the womb is a reward. It's wonderful to have children. And then to see your ch- children grow up and actually walk with the Lord is, is even a greater blessing. But remember, the Lord doesn't promise that all our kids will be saved. All right, it doesn't. Now, when you are saved and you live those things before your children's eyes, the grace of God is abundant in that home, and there's a great possibility all your kids will be saved. But I tell you what, that also takes diligence in, in, in agreeing with the Holy Spirit and being sanctified in the character of God so you can display before them what is right and what is wrong, what is God's way and what is every other way. And even if they don't come to know, they know it's right. And they know their parents taught them that. But we all pray that our kids come to know Christ and live for Christ apart from us when they leave the home. Right? That's the, that's the greatest gift. But we all have to leave it in the sovereignty of God, don't we? God's sovereign. He's wiser than me. I don't know why some things happen and don't happen. He doesn't give us the answers to that. But I trust him and his character and his will is better than what I think. And it always will be. Right? So those are just some things uh, in probably preaching five messages on this in one. Take that. Believe me. I wish I had this information. But thank the Lord in his sovereignty and in my ignorance, the Lord gave me a great wife. I couldn't have picked Jane in a trillion years. 
and 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 thank the Lord He's sovereign in that too, right? And uh, so um, I'm humbled to uh, have a wife like I do. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Lord, your goodness to us and your long-suffering and patience with us and your willingness to correct us when we're wrong. And then, Lord, when we've sinned, your desire to want to forgive us is just overwhelming, Lord. I thank you for who you are. I thank you, Lord, for your word that is a great gift to us. I pray, Lord, that we would all desire to live by it. We know, Lord, when we study it, it pushes out our ignorance and it replaces us with the mind and thoughts of God. And we know, Lord, that's where we want to live. I do pray, Lord, for the young people who desire in their hearts someday to be married. I pray, Lord, that they truly would have a strong desire to be wise. And, Lord, to look for a person and be thinking about the kind of person they want to marry. And I pray, Lord, that even now they'll decide what to do. But I know, Lord, even because of sin, things can go wrong. Things can go south. And I just pray, Lord, when they have and when they will, will that you would rescue us and that you would allow, always bring us back to the place where we're made humble, that we are brought under your, your will in that matter, and that we, if that need be, repent, and that we know we find in Christ forgiveness. And we thank you, Lord. And I just pray that you would bless our young people with good marriages. I pray you bless the marriages that are represented here and in our church family, that you would bless them Lord, with a desire to want them to be the picture of how Christ loves the church. So, Lord, let us be humble and submissive to the Holy Spirit when he convicts us of sin, when he shows us that we have not been the person we ought to be in our marriage. And I pray that you would change our attitude, change our mind, change us so, so Lord, we can go and uh, put to death our sin and put on righteousness and put on the garments that are pleasing before your sight spiritually and work at our sanctification as you work in us you would work it out thank you lord for what you'll do in christ's name amen let's stand together